Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to the latest edition of the Autosport 70 podcast. Autosport is 70 years old and we're celebrating that by taking on the challenge of picking the greatest competition cars from various uh, various categories. And this edition is all about IndyCar racing. And I'm very pleased to say that uh, my first guest, I'm Chief Editor of Autosport, Kevin Turner, my chief guest is IndyCar guru, David Malcher-Lopez, who has just... Uh, just finished filing all these reports and podcasts and everything from the 104th running of the Indianapolis 500, which was must have been quite strange, David, because it was run behind closed doors and then finished pretty strangely too. Yes, the run behind closed doors thing is uh, just uh, a heartbreak for Roger Penske and uh, that he takes over just in time to for you know the sporting world to collapse around him. It looks beautiful, but. There weren't enough people there to enjoy it. It's not the first Indy 500 to end under yellow, and uh, they did the right thing because that attenuator was going to take ages to rebuild. Uh, so you couldn't just have the car sitting there, uh, you know, idle uh, on the track, waiting for it to be rebuilt just for a three, three, uh, three or four lap shootout. So no, they did the right thing. No, that's that's fair enough. Um, well, th- my second special guest is our technical editor, Jake Boxall-Legg. Now, these IndyCars, I suppose when you're talking about IndyCars, you immediately think of the Indianapolis 500, but of course, uh, it's much more than that. It's road courses, it's street courses, so it'd be interesting perhaps to see whether we're going to go for a car that's more oval-orientated or something that's perhaps got a broader level of success. What what are you looking for in this debate? Uh, I'm looking for, look, to be honest with you, I quite like the as with my age, more of a modern cars perhaps and IndyCar has been a lot more of a sort of mix between the two. 
Um, obviously, you have different parts of history where it was more of an over-oriented series and then other parts when it was a little bit more road course oriented. So we've got a nice mix here. I'm looking forward to, to delving into some of these. Yeah, absolutely. There's some fascinating cars um, that we're going to be looking at. But I'm, I'm sorry to say we're going to start off at the other end of the spectrum for you, Jake. So we're going to start with the with the oldest first. And just, just to remind people that the main criteria, how successful these cars were, uh, how much they changed the game. Uh, and then um, we've got the, the sort of the fever rating, which is our, which is basically how much we like them. So it gives us a bit of wriggle room uh, at the end of the day. So hopefully we can have a bit of fun with it. So I'm going to have to explain the first choice, to, probably to my guests a little bit as well, because we did have a discussion about what obviously should be on this beforehand. Uh, uh, and I decided to pin the first one down to the 1922 Duesenberg Miller that Jimmy Murphy used to win uh, the Indianapolis 500 in 1922. That seems a bit random, um, but the reason I picked it is because for me it's a bit of a start point. Both Duesenberg and Miller were the two constructors uh, and engine manufacturers as well, of course, in the 1920s and, and 1930s. So for me, this kind of represents the start of that point. Apparently, uh, the, um, the Duesenberg weren't very happy because that car, the chassis, was actually one of the, the Grand Prix cars from the year before, and they were very pleased when he got hold of it, not so pleased when he put a Miller engine in it. Um, but uh, David, I mean, Duesenberg and Miller—they're the you know once once they've the Americans have overcome the Peugeots and the Mercedes that have been winning the five hundred in the sort of the nineteen teens into the twenties and thirties. These are the two big names, aren't they, for a while? Absolutely, and uh, I think the twenties cars are absolutely uh, exquisite, and also they also. Uh, <laughs> They kind of remind us just uh, the pe- the perils of the past. I mean, uh, this thing had, what, uh, 185 horsepower? It's very nearly one horsepower per cubic inch, I think. And uh, to think of them on what we would refer to as pram wheels, uh, you know, going around uh, a brickyard, which, and it literally was a brickyard there. I mean, these guys are just be these drivers are just you know beyond comprehension in terms of bravery but i guess you're never frightened of the uh, you, you're never frightened if you've just you know lived through a, or seen a, a war uh you know fought, fought between uh, you know planes that are built like uh, canvas and string and that kind of thing um so i i think we just have a very different perspective all i can say is at 90 90 miles an hour around the speedway in those days would have been as terrifying as, you know, 260 uh, miles an hour around the speedway these days. Uh, And I think it's uh, that car, as well as being shockingly good looking, uh, is also, uh, yeah, definitely one of the most significant cars because, of course, it set set the uh, template, as it were, for Miller to just kind of own the speedway for the next several years uh it was uh yeah a remarkable car and obviously duesenberg is a classic mark as well i i i was surprised when you pinned it down to one particular uh miller car but uh if you were going to i think that was the one for sure Cool. Well, I mean, I think um, Harry Miller, if we were talking about some of the most important figures in American, well, international motorsport, but particularly American motorsport, then he would be on there. Um, And just to give some stats to that, I mean, the Miller as a chassis constructor was the scored more wins than the other during the 
um, American Automobile Association period of IndyCar racing. Miller won the uh, Indianapolis 500 six times, Duesenberg four. So yeah, that's that was kind of the start point. But but Jake, um, uh, as David said there, obviously there are lots of different cars um, that scored those successes. You know, then it's not that same one. So um, although we've we've sort of picked it to represent a really important part of IndyCar history. Can it make it through to the final, or is it just is it just it's representing a group rather than being an individual car that we could put through? Well, when you look when you look at it, it is nearly a hundred years old. Um, to, sorry to make people feel old, um, but it's it's such a throwback to an old age. It's got that straight eight engine um, that that Harry Miller produced. It's. I, I don't think on merit on performance that it can make it through. It's it's too it's too old fashioned. It would like be putting I don't know, a loom through as the best technologically advanced innovation of the twentieth century. Um but I think it is nice to look at, but I think it's probably a little bit too far gone to realistically shove it through all the way to the final. Well, I, I think I can live with that, but I would. Um, I, I do think it was worth talking about those uh, those pre-war cars. Some of them were fantastic. I completely agree with David as well. That I'm sure the the intrepid pilots and remember the mechanics as well that used to climb aboard them. And, and I mean, I mean, the mechanics must have been even more crazy than the drivers. I think that that that's definitely worthy of uh, mention and uh, sort of my tip tip my hat to them. I would I would also point out that it's qualifying speed that year. Uh, 100.5 yeah it was the 100.5 miles an hour i realized they weren't going to more than uh two decimal points i don't think uh but i mean it was just so way about it was such uh you know i would compare it to the step that the chaparral 2k uh made you know in 1980 or 79 uh i think it was that it really did move the game on and it made everyone just think, oh my God, right, okay, we need to get our stuff together here. Yeah, absolutely. And it did set that tone until the until the war really and then and or nearly the Second World War Maserati and and and, and, and those cars. But and we're gonna skip actually past the, the the Maserati, which I think is a fantastic piece of kit. Well, I'll tell you what, David, tell us why you're such a fan. Because it was uh, a potential winner both sides of the war, and I realised that a lot of progress, uh, you know, in these things halted because of the war. But in you know, in America's case, it didn't it didn't come in until yeah nineteen forty two, and obviously the uh, HCTF was a winner in Wilbur Shaw's hands, and God, it you know it really should have been a, a winner in Ted Horn's hands as well. Uh, it was. Uh, I just think it was a shockingly good piece of kit to still be competitive uh, over such a wide, uh, you know, such a, a long duration. Uh, I mean, as well as, okay, my my heart beats a little faster for that era of Maserati anyway, but I just think that uh, it w- also lived up to its absolutely gorgeous looks. Uh, and so that would be my quite aesthetic uh, argument for it. But I just think it, it carries it through as far as uh, a uh, a winning machine is concerned, and I'd actually say the same for the Lou Moore's, uh, you know, Blue Crown Specials as well. 
Yeah, actually, in a way, probably more successful in America, bizarrely. Than, well, I mean, the, the, obviously, Maserati did win Grand Prix in the late 40s, but by the time the World Championship comes along and whenever Alfa Romeo are around, of course, um, they, they sort of play second fiddle. So perhaps in a sort of a bizarre situation where the foreigner is better remembered in America than it was where it originated, perhaps. But uh, Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, like the, the Depeche next... Mode, really. <laughs> oh, I think feel like Marcus Simmons has joined us for this. Uh, we're going to have these sorts no, of music I, references. I, I, I just want to point out that you know this um, uh, American uh, American radio was just so hot on British new wave stuff that it, it, there really was a second coming of uh, uh, yeah the British invasion in the early eighties uh, for UK synth music. It's uh, very strange. There's the people who made it over here and not uh, in the UK. Anyway, carry on. Fantastic aside, yes. So we're, we're going to, so we, we move on to the, the, the next car on the list is, is a very much a homegrown uh, car. It's the Curtis Craft. And really, uh, it's almost here for a number of reasons. It kind of represents, I suppose, the, you know, the front engine roadster, um, the Offenhauser engine, uh, which is still the most successful uh, uh, engine in terms of Indy 500 wins, 27 wins. Um, so, uh, and and you picked a very particular one, didn't you, David? Why did you pick this particular Curtis Craft? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I think Bill Vukovic could have been put in something half a second slower and he'd still have been a shockingly good driver around the speedway, maybe the greatest of all time. But it was the, it was the design whereby it no longer looked like what we might refer to these days as a voiturette, uh, where you're sitting straight you know, up behind the high-mounted engine straddling the drive shaft and that kind of thing. It was the first, yeah, it had a very low frontal area in comparison with anything else at the time. Yeah, it put the driver beside uh, the drive shaft, had a laid-down engine, uh, and it was just astonishingly good. And, um, you know, Vicky basically should have, I mean, he, yeah, he should have won four straight, Indy 500s. I mean, he, like I say, I'm not decrying his talent because he was amazing. But that car was just a step. But I mean, you look at the starting grids from, uh, you know, 52, uh, the first year it rolled out, or 53. Uh, yeah, any of those things and it just looks in another class it it's almost as shocking as the pictures of you know jimmy clark's lotus alongside the roasters uh in the early early to mid 60s it's just it's just moved the game on and uh yeah like i say if it hadn't been for a steering failure in 52 and then uh, obviously a hideous accident in 55 vicky would have won for uh, four straight 500s and not and it wasn't even close i mean he was just in another world uh so yeah that would be my argument for that but i also realized my it has a great aesthetical appeal much like the maserati 8 ctf so it, that comes into it as well but. well well my my feeling is that this should go through for a number of reasons one is it was we're not just talking about uh, Indy 500 wins, of course. It you know was uh, did win at other venues, other championship uh, v- events, and of course the Curtis Craft 500 series. That it wasn't a single car. I know there were obviously lots of specials, some were more special than others, like you're saying. But it is a it, it's a series of cars that uh, filled the grid, won lots of races in a way that the Duesenberg Miller we talked about 
uh, didn't. And I think really, if we're talking IndyCar, you've, we've got to have a front-engine roaster. In fact, I, I think I read somewhere that Vukovic almost coined the term, didn't he? The the roaster was he one of the f- first people to? Not sure if that's one of those urban myths or not, David. But I uh, don't know. I read his reread his uh, biography again really recently, but I don't uh, I don't know if, uh, if he coined that, but quite possibly. But um, so, unless you've got any uh, objections, Jake, I'm going to put the the Curtis Craft through to the to the final. I think we've got to have a front engine roadster there. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I mean, it was very much in that, as you said at the top. It, that's kind of Offenhauser revolution, where every single car on the grid was powered by that engine at the time. Um, obviously, it was part of that anomalous era of Formula One when it was inexplicably part of the championship as well. <laughs> um, so, obviously, Vukovic has, Vukovic has, you know, technically F1 records, even though, you know, we, we debate that now. More, but yeah, more world championship uh, victories than Jean Lacey. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> for example. So, uh, by winning Indy 500. Yeah, exactly. So, it's kind of a random sort of historical anomaly, really. Um, yeah, yeah that's that's I think... So I think a bit like Jean Lacey racing at the Indy 500 in a, a, lo- <laughs> in a Lotus powered car. That was a we- poor, poor man. Poor Has he man. finished that Indy 500 yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Very maybe harsh. not. Maybe Very not. Harsh. Um, but actually, that brings us quite nicely onto the next car on this. I'm going to throw back to, to you here, uh, uh, Jake, um, because this is. Uh, first of all, it's a car that kills off, effectively kills off the front-engined uh, roadsters. Um, although it's not, of course, the first mid-engine car to appear at the Indy 500. It's not the first mid-engine car that probably should have won it. But it's the it's the Lotus 38, um, a really key car for setting up what well what Indy cars would look like after 1965. Yeah, it was very much a case of. Um you know, the Brits having a look at Indy 500 going, hmm, can we do can we do our own thing for this? Um, and so obviously Colin Chapman and Len Terry go away, make a make an Indy car, uh, ask Jim Clark to have a go in it. Um, and, you know, they turn up and it's it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal car. Um, you know, the 38 was an evolution of the, the 29, the 34. Um this time they brought some of their F1 technology, so all of the pioneering they'd done with with the monocoque that was now part of the part of the equation. Um, Ford had produced a, a V8 for them as well, so this was sort of using the the groundwork that they'd done in Formula One when the two series were were very very similar and bringing it over to the US and sort of tailoring it a little bit, but. Yeah, it was hugely successful. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe it should have won more. Yeah. Well, that's actually um, a point I want to ask David. And I know he's a he's a sort of a Lotus and Clark fan. Um, and 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 you know, Jim Clark's win at ninety sixty five in the five hundred. I mean, he described it as a, as a perfect run. It was one of those races where just everything went right. He led most of the race. His fuel stops were on point. He dominated the event, and it was the first time that uh, the race had been won at more than 150 mile average speed. My sort of point to you, David, though, is that the Lotus 38 doesn't actually win many IndyCar races. It wins the huge one, changes the game. And yes, I know that AJ Foyt used a couple of the chassis to then build his early Coyotes as well, so it has that significance there. But does it has it got enough wins under its uh, on its CV for it to to go further in this? Um. That's, that's a really I'm on the question. fence. I'm, I, I could be yeah. persuaded either way with this one. 
It's a very fair question. Um, I would say it's a culmination of a, of a series because obviously, you know, Jimmy did, you know, win Milwaukee uh, and Parnelli, yes, and Parnelli Jones also uh, won races uh, in uh, the 34, I believe, yes, uh, in, uh, at Milwaukee. Although by then, the 29 and 34. <laughs> They, you know, they were turning into bits as much like the Colt was a development of a Lola. Um, so, uh, how, you know, you started getting 29 straight 34s and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it deserves to go through because it did, you know, spark, it, it did help spark a revolution or it was another kind of like, um, uh, it was another significant uh, move in a trend that was had already begun maybe not so much with the 29 but certainly by the time of the 34 people were saying oh yeah the roadsters days are numbered yeah i mean most of the cars on that 1965 grid actually were already mid-engine weren't they um i mean clark had been on pole with the 34 the year before but they'd had tire problems but in the th- third year third time lucky it, it all came together didn't it so i think on f- fever rating I think we can put the we'll put the we'll put the Lotus thirty eight through. Get the game changer plus fever rating gets it through. Um, I think. Um, but the next one, um, we're going to discuss two here because I think we need to pick one of these two cars because I think they're quite interlinked. Um, both they took it in turns to win the Indy five hundred. They took it in turns to win races in the championship. Uh, the McLaren M sixteen and the nineteen seventy two Eagle, um, which. Maybe I think the Eagle won more races during the period. McLaren won more Indy 500s. The McLaren uh, significant was it set that aerodynamic trend set started by the Lotus 72 in Formula One um, radiators and side pods a bit more of an aerodynamic thinking behind it. So I'm very interested to hear David whether you want to go for a bit of a McLaren fever or I mean Dan Gurney and Eagle's pretty cool as well. So where do you where do you think we should go with this one? Not always stellar record in terms of race results was partly a <laughs> result of the way Bobby Unser drove. Uh, like every race was a hundred miles long instead of five hundred miles. Uh, he, uh, which is why it has a just inordinate number of pole positions, but uh, fewer uh, fewer race wins than it perhaps deserves. Um, I I would put the McLaren ahead because it was a, it came. It came out first, you know, as much as anything. I think the Eagle carried on refining the ideas of uh, the McLaren. But I think the McLaren was the step. Um, And, you know, McLaren went on and won, I think, 28 races over the course of the the 70s. Uh, Admittedly, some of those were the M24. But that, again, was just a a natural development of the 16. Um... I think, yeah, in terms of absolute pace, uh, I would put the Eagle ahead. Uh, but uh, the McLaren as just the car that people wanted. You know, there has to, there has to be a reason why, um, you know, Roger stuck with McLaren until Penske started building his own cars rather than, uh, you yeah, know, necessarily switch to the uh, Eagle. So, yeah. yeah I'm- 
I'm very happy with that. I mean, and Gordon Coppock sort of set the template, didn't he, with that car? And the other thing I like about it is that it, it continues winning through a rule change. Obviously, the um, 1973, the speeds were getting really high. There were some pretty nasty accidents. There were some rule changes. Uh, and so there was the CD version, there was the E version. And it, and even after that, of course, it still won two more Indy 500s with, with Rutherford. So, um, Although, yeah, to I'm, be fair... It had to be one or the other that won because, you know, McLarens and Eagles were just, you know, filled the grid to to a large extent uh, during that period. Yeah, well, it's 72, 74 and 76 for McLaren and Eagle filling in the gaps in between. So it kind of backs, backs up your point there, really. So, um, yeah, Jake, have you got to, I know that you're a, you're sort of a fan of the Lotus 72 and the template it set in Formula One. So do we therefore give the, the sort of the credit to the McLaren for doing a similar sort of thing in IndyCar? Well, I think so. I think what's actually quite interesting about that McLaren as well is that when Gordon Coppock designed it for 1971, um, it's a McLaren's Formula One team another two years to implement something like that in Formula One, which is the series where the Lotus 72 was, um, with the with the M23, which then became very, very successful. So it's kind of a forebear. An Indy car was a forebear to a very successful Formula One car, which is quite a weird bit of a flex, but... Um, yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the M16 for this one. Yeah, and and uh, as we're making uh, links to Formula One, the next car on the list um, is, in my opinion, it feels a bit like the IndyCar equivalent of the Lotus 79 for two reasons, uh, Jake. One is what it brings in the technology, and the other is how long it lasts at the top of the game. So it's the it's the Chaparral 2K. Yeah, well, as we know from Chaparral and Jim Hall, the the designer of all of the Chaparrals uh, in in uh, in Canam in IndyCar, is that they that was the team on the other side of the Atlantic that was pushing the aerodynamic development. Um, so, for example, with the uh, with the, with the Canam cars at the top of the seventies, there was obviously the 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 fan cars at the back, which was generating huge amounts of downforce. They had um, uh, movable wings as well which is sort of a, a precursor to what we have now in formula one uh, and then on the 2k you had you know massive ground effect suction underfloor to to the car um so they were sort of like even though they were completely different teams chaperone lotus they were sort of entwined in their aerodynamic development sort of developing these ideas at largely the same time um, and so, yeah, hugely, hugely innovative brands. And David, you'll be pleased now, actually, that I've got a 1979 issue of Autosport on my desk as I sit here, and it's actually got a picture of the 2K on the cover. So um, there we go. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a lurid cover, but the car looks fantastic. But um, so w- where do you stand on the 2K? When we talked about the Grand Prix cars, we, we, we knocked out the Lotus 79 because it didn't stay on the uh, at the top long enough, didn't make the most of its step. Um, uh, do we say the same about the, the, the 2K? I mean, obviously Rutherford won the 1980 title, the Indy 500, one car team, pretty incredible story really. And also, personally, I think it's a cool looking car. Um, but is it, but, but, but is it, does it, does it deserve to go through really? I think it does. Well, it depends on uh, whether you can't, you know, whether you're dragging reliability uh, into this or not, or if we're just talking about the concept and its application on 
on track. I think that should be a factor. I think yeah, it's got to. It's, you've got to finish races. I mean, there's no point having the fastest car in the world if it keeps. Keep, that was one of the things against the Lotus Forty Nine, of course, when we talked about that in the F One podcast as well. It was 1967? No car has ever wasted such a performance advantage uh, to not win a title that year. So I think it's got to probably be part of that overall assessment of the package. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well. Okay, it's therefore debatable. I mean, 79, there were a lot of issues for it to uh, iron out when uh, Alonso was still with the team. And bear in mind, he was one of the finest uh, test drivers. Uh, His feedback was minimal, but it was always spot on accurate. And he passed those skills on to his son, which will come up later. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think the... Uh, the 2K was uh, shockingly good. I think it's uh, very uh, interesting that uh, you think you consider all the uh, you consider all the great Formula One cars that John Barnard was involved in, and uh, he picked the 2K for the front cover of his uh, biography as being like the apotheosis of uh, his uh, achievement. Yeah, it came. Yeah, it finally came good in the final round of '79. Uh, and uh, Al got his, <laughs> got the win, and then just walked away from the team because he was falling out with Jim Hall, uh, and handed over the keys to Johnny Rutherford. I mean, I think we should take into account that it was so far ahead of its time that Johnny Rutherford immediately uh, adapted to it and had such a performance. Yeah, I think accessibility uh, has to be part part of this uh, absolutely yeah especially uh, on a well. high speed oval you exactly. need to have faith in the kit don't you exactly and the, for someone to just step in I mean he said within a couple of laps he was going around Phoenix flat and he said it, it caught him out just how strong the G's were he said he like he actually felt the lungs being his lungs uh, you know having the air squeezed out of them and actually letting out a grunt because he couldn't believe the g-force of taking the chaparral around phoenix uh, but the fact that he had the bravery and could immediately tap into its potential i think shows you how what a user-friendly device it was uh, by then i think in 81 as well uh, it, it should have won more uh, he actually got pretty uh, unlucky i i think Chaparral had fiddled with it a little uh, too much because, of course, Penske then started applying its rules. But, I mean, is that any different from a Lotus 79 immediately being superseded by the Williams FW07, uh, basically taking what was learned by someone else and then making it better by making the underfloor stiffer to make the ground effects work more? It's a, it's a remarkably similar story, actually, isn't it? It's quite a, so. I mean, be, well, I tell you what. Before we before we make a decision on the chaparral, and I'm very pleased that there's a chaparral in there because I'm a bit of a bit of a fan of of Jim Hall's work. I think that's it's just very very cool. Um, the next kind of list is the Penske PC10, which doesn't move things on in the same way that the 2K does. Um, it also manages to be successful across a rule change where you've got ground effects and you haven't anymore um, because obviously you've got Rick, Rick Mears winning the title in 82, um, then Unser Senior um, doing the job in 83. So it's got a slightly longer longevity than Chaparral, hasn't moved the game on in the same way uh, and actually misses out on the big one, doesn't it, in one of the remarkable Indy 500 finishes. Yeah, that was... <laughs> I mean, God forbid... That I criticise Rick Mears for, well, for anything really. He's uh, a hero, but 
I mean, that was more a combination of slight misjudgments and that Rick, um, Rick showed his hand a little too early, he feels, and also um, Penske team gave him a little too much gas in that final stop, so his car was that bit uh, heavier. Um, otherwise, you know, he would have been past the Wildcat, which, and let's not forget that that Wildcat was based on the FW07 uh, layout as well. Um, I I think it had maybe it hadn't moved the game on, but it was to me it's like the the peak the zenith you know uh, of the ground effect era. And Mears told me that when they took the, all the ground effects off, they realised that everything was pointing in the wrong direction. He said the car was just a monster at first uh, because like none of the spring you know everything had been so subsumed by the effect of ground effect that, uh, you know, the spring ratings were way off. Uh, you know, the camber was out, the toe was out, everything was wrong <laughs> with the car, but its ground effect had been so inordinately strong. Uh, it, it was just, uh, uh, it just masked all those things, which is why, you know, ground effects it, to that extension never come back. Yeah, I think, I think we agree with that. Stupid. I mean, it's a t- testament to Penske uh, and the team for re-engineering it into being successful without, without. But I mean, I mean, praise for Penske is not you know not hard to come by, is it? But that's just another example of them getting on top of something. But, 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 Jake. Okay, so uh, do we go for the car that start that starts the ground effects revolution in the car, or the, or the one as David says is the kind of the zenith, the, the peak of it um, before it uh, the rules change. Well, I think we had this uh, this problem last time on the F1 podcast, when we, the Grand Prix cars podcast, when we were trying to work out whether we bring the 79 forward, given that it started the revolution, but it didn't continue it. Um, the PC-10 is sort of like the Williams or the Brabham in this situation where it took the ground effects and it kicked the ball rolling. Um, I'm, I'm a bit torn. Um, I think in this case... Yeah, the Penske PC10 was was a fantastic car, um, but there's some some luster in the Chaparral name that I'm, I'm more swayed by. I think at this point in time, I'm going to go with that. I think the Chaparral's cooler uh, as well. I just think it looks mega, and I think David's point about it being immediately accessible as well is um, yeah is, is is a very good point because uh, not all technical innovations are, are like that, are they? So the uh, the Chaparral 2K. Um, goes through uh, to the to the final. Um, we're now going to move on to another um, uh, famous constructor that uh, was big in IndyCar, certainly in the 1980s, uh, and we reckon this was probably the best the bunch. In fact, I think Mario Andretti thinks this is the best of the bunch, so that's pretty good, uh, pretty good endorsement. The March 86C. So um, David Lola had sort of taken taken the initiative with the. Uh, in 1984 with the T800 uh, and March sort of had to had to bounce back against them and the 86C was was the car that sort of really did it wasn't it yeah I mean uh, looking down the stats from uh, 86 the fact that the top three finishers in the championship were all driving uh, March 86Cs and the next two were Lola it that's to me is the fact that uh, is pretty much a giveaway that it was truly a, a remarkable car but again we get into this awkward uh, area where we're talking about families of cars uh, and we have to uh, a little later on with our next uh, choice um 
But was it the greatest? Um, yeah, probably. Uh, I think how many wins did it score that year? I mean, several. But I always, and uh, this is a purist in me, I always look at the pole positions as well because that shows us the ultimate pace and it scored several poles as well. I think the fact that it was being done by, uh, being run by three different teams as well is a giveaway there as well as to how strong it was. You know, Bobby driving for True Sports, Michael for Craker and Danny Sullivan for uh, Penske. Uh, I think it's fair to say, you know, if I was going to pick any March, that would that would probably be the one. Uh, and I'd of course, that, sure. that's another car with some uh, a sort of a designer with future F1 CV because Adrian Newey was involved in that car, of course, as well. So that's, you know, John Barnard and Adrian Newey in the, in the two cars that we've uh, we've, we've, we've talking about. Um, so what do you think, Jake? I mean, my, my feeling on that, this is not my favourite era in terms of aesthetics for India cars, I have to say. I don't, I, I preferred the, I think I preferred the 70s and the 90s over the 80s Indy cars. I don't know whether that's that's fair, but yeah, I've always thought that that sort of march was a little bit on the podgy side. And from an aesthetic point of view, obviously it was very good. Uh, yeah, and an Adrian Newey car is not normally described like that. So, so Jake, what do you, where, where do you stand on the 86C and the car that uh, Bobby Rahal won the championship in? Yeah, I suppose a bit aesthetically, the driver's a little bit far forward in relation to the back of the car. It does look a little bit sort of out of proportion. Um, but yeah, as you say, it is an Adrian Newey penned car. I think it came after his, after he'd left the, the Fittipaldi team after it had ended and he had spent a little bit of time in the US before March saw how successful this car was and brought him back to F1 to pen the um, the, the 881. Um yeah, I think in terms of success, it is, you know, a f- phenomenal car. We were in that age where everyone was using a sort of the DFE-derived Cosworth DFX, which is the, the turbo variant. Um, there wasn't... In the 80s, it's weird because there was quite a lot of variation in chassis constructors at the time when you look at series like Formula 3000, that kind of thing. But the fact that it was dominated by Lolas and Marches uh, and the Marches were so so strong it was it's sort of a little bit of a uh, a strange side note but i i'm well, i don't know I, part of that is because of course you know penske was going through quite a, a fallow period at that time uh, yeah as well. and and you've got those penske guys using the 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 marches that year um i think in terms of success it's it's phenomenal but it, it doesn't fill me with a massive amount of sort of excitement it's that fever rating we're talking about isn't it it's not it's just it's missing something it's missing something yeah I, I, and i'm also looking at the other cars that we've already put through and the 2k chaparral you know it's a similar kind of um success in terms of how long it was successful for similar in that respect but the 2k moves the moves the game on in a way that i don't think the march does and i think it is a kind of cooler looking car so i think we can certainly say that the march 86e one of the great uh customer cars if you like um uh, and probably the finest March IndyCar. But I, I, I think I, or maybe fall by the wayside at this point. And we're now going to move on to... And now, David, talked about the series of cars, which is a bit of a... Sometimes a bit of an issue as to which one are you talking about. But we have an answer for this one because we've asked the designer himself, which makes uh, makes life a little bit easier. So this is the this is the T90-00 series of Lolas, which went from the 90 to the 93. Um, and Bruce Ashmore, who designed the, the, those cars... 
he picked the T91. He thought that, that was just that was the sweet spot. That was the one where he had the performance and the adjustability, and it was just a really refined version um, of the of the 90. Um, I mean, Loda sweep the championships during this period. The one thing I find slightly strange, David, um, uh, is it's it's inability to win the Indy 500 after 1990. Now. Do we hold the fact that Rick Mears pulled out one of the greatest motorsport performances of all time to stop Michael Andretti winning the 1991 Indy 500 against um, against the Lola? Is that a bit harsh? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you've got to build driver, uh, driver genius into this, uh, I suppose. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I adore Mears, but it's always just annoyed the hell out of me that Newman Haas never scores an Indy 500 victory because um, you know they had all the ingredients there unfortunately one of the ingredients was Andretti terrible luck uh, whether we're talking father or son uh, no I don't think you should uh, hold that against it I think that was a, a bit of inspiration from Mears uh, yeah I think we should look at the fact that in fact in that race Michael almost lapped Rick at one point uh, it was only because he, yeah, because of the way the yellows fell, and Rick got back onto uh, the tail of the uh, of the lead pack that he was able to perform that drive. I mean, Michael, just like he did in '92, was uh, was starring and uh, should, yeah, against any other driver. I refuse to believe any other driver would have actually even tried that maneuver and carried it off, other than me. So. Yeah, to me, it's the same thing that we were talking about the Penske PC10. Um, yeah, on any other day, um, that car would have won the 500. I don't think we can <laughs> hold that against it. But I mean, it, it's it's just such an interesting period of Lola, isn't it? Because we have, uh, you know, in ninety in ninety two. Like, uh, you know, it's the engine that lets it down that prevents the T92 from becoming an Indy 500 winner. And in 93, it's Nigel Mansell's inexperience of restarts that renders it, you know, costs it. And in fact, Mario could have won that race as well in the other Newman House, Lola. So, I mean, I think that whole whole period of uh, Newman House misfortune is is truly what <laughs> counts against the Lola winning at the 500 rather than rather than any uh, issues with the car itself. I mean, I I think those cars were uh, were wonderful, and they were just, you know, obviously in 92, uh, Michael should have won the championship, but the Cosworth XP kept blowing up. But then, of course, in 93, by then it's refined. He's gone off to a disaster in McLaren, and uh, Nigel wins the championship. So, yeah, I mean, I just think that whole period of Lola... They were just awesome, and I I want to give a lot of credit there to uh, Al Al Junior because he really helped push the Gallas team into uh, getting that unfair advantage that Mark Donahue had spoken about twenty years earlier for Penske. Uh, yeah, he really helped. His feedback was just so spot on. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree on the on this. It's a great period of IndyCar history, isn't it? You've got multi multi make, lots of teams at the front, um, and I think the cars. I think the cars look cool. Like we we, we criticise the march slightly, but I think you into that slimmer line, 
kind of they almost look like more meaty aggressive formula one cars like with more oomph and i always like racing cars with oomph i think that's good um and just to back up your point about 91 michael energy of course won eight races on his way to the title that season uh and it's rare for anyone to win especially in those days when they were you know well obviously we've got curtailed calendars all over the place now but that's half the races um which is which is pretty unbelievable in such a competitive environment so um uh, and I think also the, the the Mansell factor, if you're talking about the family of cars, you know that really IndyCar racing took off of in, in terms of interest in Europe during that period as well, and the, and that Lola looked cool as well. So, so Jake, whereas we got rid of the march on on these uh, these grounds, do we? I, I want to put the Lola through. I'll be honest. I, I think the T ninety one double O should go through. Yeah, absolutely. It's an absolutely gorgeous car. Uh, it was that as you said, it was that age of IndyCar where you start to get all of these. You know, huge amounts of top line drivers, teams all at the front, huge sort of variation in in engine suppliers as well. It's uh, it is a bit of a golden age. I want to put that. I want to put that car through as well. Yeah, and and if we don't, we haven't got any representation from Lola, have we? That's a very list. good point. Yeah, Lola, we have to have in the same exactly. way. You've got to have a. You've got to have a Penske. You've got to have a. Got to have a Lola, haven't you? And think in the in the final debate, uh, which brings us nicely on to the next car, which is a Penske, and we're sort of slightly cheating here because it's two cars in one. The the PC twenty three, uh, which dominated the championship, one two three in the championship. So so the team won with with Answer Junior, Fitter Emerson, Zipaldi, and Paul Tracy won. 12 of the 16 races you're kind of into mclaren williams-esque domination uh of indycar racing um but the, it's probably most famous for the one race that they ran the pc23b uh which jake you know something about i'm gonna throw to jake first and then we'll come to you david because i can see your smile there um because there's penske also had a second program with that car running uh which was pretty special wasn't it yeah, that was the uh, one-off uh, Ilmore Mercedes special, super special engine that was so dominant in the in the ninety four Indy five hundred. A phenomenal story, a phenomenal tale. Um, obviously, this was all orchestrated by Ilmore and and Penske working from you know various different locations. Um, obviously, they're doing all the track testing in the US, but Penske had the 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 base in the UK. Um, Ilmore put together the this super special engine because um, you were able to use a push rod engine back at the time and you'd get more turbo boost pressure than you would um, running just like a standard twin cam engine. So Penske saw that and thought we can get so much more speed, so much more power out of this engine in the Indy 500 if we run it. And because they didn't want it to get banned beforehand, they did it like in complete secrecy as well. Um, tested it out I think there was a, a test at Nazareth I think where Paul Tracy's hands were so cold he could barely feel them when he got out of the car um, and then yeah when it came to the Indy 500 they blew everybody away um, and it was it was, the only thing that contrived them of uh, a 1-2 finish was Fittipaldi binning it towards the end so I, I I find it such an interesting car, um, obviously, with that engine. And then, obviously, after that race, uh, the boost uh, regulations got turned down quite dramatically. So it was basically, that was kind of the end for it after after one race. What I find fascinating is that it wasn't actually that good uh, a chassis with that big beast uh, engine in it. They, uh, you know, you speak to Al Junior and he says they were having, to, it was so fast on the straights, but they're having to slow down so much. Uh, for turns and 
PT said he went, this is scarcely believable, but apparently he tripped the uh, turn three speed trap at 253 miles an hour. But unfortunately, he tried to carry too much speed. It's too much of that speed through the turn, which is why he ended up having to qualify on the following weekend because he had the mother and father of all wrecks. Um, but, I mean, it was not a, an entirely pleasant car to drive, and I'm sure that's part of the reason that uh, M.O. Uh, binned it. But that was also driven somewhat by uh, Ego, because he was trying to, or not Ego, uh, perhaps, but he was trying to put Junior a lap down uh, at the time. And, uh, yeah, it just got too high coming out of four. But it was a tricky car to to handle. But the standard PC23 was a good chassis, wasn't it? Because, I mean, it won on all sorts of different types of circuit. It was amazing. And, uh, again, part of that was uh, Alonso's testing ability because, you know, MO, he, Alonso, jun- sorry, Junior, uh, he, just, he just, to me, is the absolute best combination of the qualities of Paul Tracy and uh, Emerson Fittipaldi. There's no surprise to me that that's, you know, eight. He got eight of the wins, I think, that year. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he fully deserved his championship. You know, he could be all fire fire in the, uh, in the races, but uh, he is ice cold. And I think he got so few uh, pole positions uh, junior, but I think six of them came that year um, in '94 because that's how superior the car was. But it's also because he understood it uh, so well, much as Mario Andretti, you know, in qualifying uh, had a better record than Ronnie Peterson in the Lotus 79. It's because he, he understood the car, he knew what he was going for. Um, and uh, he just struck the absolute right balance and when you bear in mind that the Lola T94 was not a bad car uh, that Mario and uh, Mansell were driving and it couldn't even get a sniff of victory that year uh, yeah I I just think that the the 23 unfairly gets overshadowed by the 23B because of what happened at Indy but when you consider that Roger Penske considers that his favourite victory at the speedway out of uh, eight, 18 wins I think that's as good a reason as any to include it in a final. Yeah, for, for me, this is an absolute no-brainer it goes through because the standard car is one of the most dominant cars in IndyCar history. and um, One, two, three in the championship. I mean, you, you literally can't do better than that. Uh, and then you've also got, uh, obviously, the Indy story. And I always rather like it if a car is so amazing that they have to change the rules, which is one of the reasons why I made a very strong case, ultimately futile in the sports car one, that the 917 should win, which I'm still seething about, but I'm, I'll get over it. So the Penske PC23 is definitely going through to the final. Uh, we can't this. have Kevin seething on us. God I, I know. I'm, 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 I'll get over it one day, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, I've, I hope people have listened to it in order. Otherwise, that's given away the uh, given away the, <laughs> the, the the conclusion to one of our well, other podcasts. Well, no, because they won't know who, what did get it. That's true. That's true. We won't. We, good point. We will move on. There'll, so, there'll be other people now seething, <laughs> saying, "What the hell could beat the Porsche 917?" Well, exactly. Yes, yes. You may ask that question, and a very good question it would be. Anyway, I've sidetracked us. I'm not supposed to do that. I'm the host, right? 
Um, the next car is a, is another constructor from another constructor that we have to include. Um, uh, it won on its. I mean, actually, made a habit of winning on its debut in all sorts of categories. But one on its one on its debut in IndyCar became the car to have at one point, and um, the man behind it, uh, the, the the company. Adrian Reynard described the nine, the Reynard 97i um, as probably the peak of what they designed and built during that period. So again, I'm I'm not going to disagree with uh, with him. And actually, Malcolm Osler, who actually designed the car, he reckoned that the 96 Lola was better than the 96 Reynard, but um, they got away with it because of tyres, engines, teams, and drivers. Whereas he said the 97 car was the thing that crushed crushed Lola properly. Uh, Remind course, me what what was it that uh, he. Uh, he believed was special about the 97 um what, I think what was that extra step was it did i see that something about gearbox location or? yeah they changed the they changed the location of the gearbox i mean maybe that's more of a question for for jake i'll i'll, I'll uh, throw to him in just a second but just to, I, I can't i can't not pass this on before mentioning alex and rd because i mean he's just like one of the coolest coolest drivers of all time isn't he the chip ganassi car i mean that was a period of time where i was you know hooked to to watching indycar racing as well um another competitive era i think the cars look superb um so and the, and the reynard was kind of the, the 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 peak of that really um so yeah so jake can you tell us maybe a little bit more about why the the 97 i was 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 such a such a good car well as uh as osler said he was in design terms, one of uh, Adrian Reynard's sort of loyal lieutenants, if you like. Um, he followed Adrian Reynard to the BAR project as well after that, that probably wasn't as successful for Reynard. Um, <laughs> but no, he said that, you know, for, for as the 96 Lola was better, for 97 they'd sorted out the aerodynamics, had a new transverse gearbox, um, they they tightened up the, the tub a little bit and made it, you know, stiffer and stronger. Um, so everything that the 96, I, I've seen the 96 car in the flesh. They used to have, uh, Brian Herter's, um, Reynard in the, in the shop at Oxford Brooks in the workshop. Uh, and I'd always look at it longingly and it, there was like a sign in the seat that says, do not sit in here. And I was just there like, no one's looking right. I'm, I'm sitting in, I'm getting in that. Um, was it the one from Laguna Seca where he got, uh. It got famously done by uh, by Mr. Zanardi at the corkscrew. Please it, tell me it was that it, car. I think it, I mean, it may well be. It Let's may say well that be. It was, yeah. it was that That's, car for the was that And someone no. else can always complain later. Yeah. But it was a 96 uh, car, wasn't it? Yeah. That you said that yeah. you had at the. Yeah. But, I, but it, I think it was in, uh, in oval config, so it might not be oh, that one. <laughs> that, wouldn't worked, that wouldn't have worked at Laguna at all, would it? That would have been, that would have been a lot more interesting. Um, but yeah, no, that's uh, a cool car, but. The, the 97 car was just they feel better um obviously at that time again i mentioned before you had all of these different chassis constructors at the time and obviously i think uh by that point march had gone the way of the dodo uh route wasn't building cars it was kind of just this lola reynard uh fight for supremacy across all of these international categories well, and Swift, of course, in America as well, had uh, were, were sort of there for a while. I mean, one of the things that Reynard said about this was, of course, this was at the time when they were setting some unbelievable average lap speeds on the super speedways. Uh, I mean, just, I mean, two, two, I don't know what it ended up at, David. I don't know whether you remember, but it was over 240 miles an hour, wasn't it? And that's and that's an, an average speed for the lap. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be there for, for that on that occasion honestly it was like standing in the middle of an air show just watching this thing it, it just 
I mean, it gives me goosebumps now just talking about it, actually, because I, I'd never seen anything on the ground move that fast, and I probably never will again, um, unless we get our Indy 500 lap records back. But, uh, yeah, a truly astonishing car. Uh, for me, you know, we always go on about how brilliant the Ganassi team was. You know, Chip just getting the best of everything. Jimmy Bassett, you know, clearly one of the rising stars, you know, very good on road and street courses, but also really, you know, a fantastic guy for feedback on ovals as well. So you got him, you got Alex Zanardi, you know, just the fighter warrior, you know, he's kind of like that Fernando Alonso warrior streak in him, like just will not give up. And then you've got Reynard Chassis, Honda engine, which is already proving to be, you know, king dingling at that time. And then uh, Firestone tires. But the amazing thing is that that car worked so well on Goodyear's as well. Uh, you know, I mean, don't get Gilles de Ferran started about it. He he felt he was like pushing a grand piano upstairs sometimes uh, when it came to dealing with the Goodyear's at that point. But the combination of him and Walker racing and, yeah, Gilles' technical adeptness um, just made that that package even with on Goodyear tires into something really quite formidable and he ends up second in the championship. I think he only got one win that year. Although that was the year that he should have got the win at Portland as well. No offense, Mark Lundell, if you're listening. Um but yeah, I think the uh I that car just worked in a variety of hands and I think that is really important now that we're into you know, very much the the customer era is important for a designer to come up with a design that works across a whole spectrum of tracks, obviously, uh, but also uh, is not specialised and is not just being, you know, you've got to realise that at this point, these cars aren't being designed with the driver giving feedback. These are just designed in a, a drawing office. It's not like Lola had a test driver or Reynard had a test driver or, you know, or Swift had a test driver. Uh, and they were just being, you know, given to a, a a team to hone it into something competitive. These things have to be immediately competitive. You get your sums wrong, and you have consigned all your teams to a, a year of you know dreadful results. So that always impressed me about uh, the uh, Reynard being able to just come into a series and win. I think that's a, I think that's a very good point. I think we we almost get used to talking about in certainly in F one terms of you know all the drivers developing the car and the team. It's all built around the one driver. I think it's a completely different design and engineering challenge, isn't it, to make a car that's successful across and as you say, not just drivers and different circuits, but also different tyres and engine. I mean, it's a remarkable challenge, and for that car to have been as successful as it was, and I think for the same reason the Lola goes through, I think that the Reynard has to has to go through as well. It doesn't have an Indy 500 win to its name, but there's a very good reason for that, and that's because, obviously, we'd had our... Sadly, we'd had the IndyCar split by then, which we're not going to go too much into. Um, the fact that we've got a big gap now between... So that's a 1997 car, and the next and final car on our list comes along 15 years later, I think probably tells you what you need to know about American open wheel racing in the early uh, the early years of the 21st century, unfortunately. Um, but it's the, it's the Dallara DW12. Now, this is different to all the other cars on the list in the sense that we're into one mate category now. And normally, normally we like multi-mate contests um, 
for well for obvious reasons variety technical challenge all that sort of thing um but the reason the dw12 is on this list and i'll be interested to know david whether you agree with this is that for me it kind of represents the indie car recovery post unification so i know that the ir05 delara was the car that was actually on the ground as it were when that happened but for me the dw12 and particularly with the latest aero kits that we've got now i just think the car looks cool uh, the championship looks healthier again. It's got some good drivers in it and proper teams, and it, it kind of it's a very good single make car, if you see what I mean. Delara are very good at that. Um, do you think that's fair? I think it is fair, and I kind of share your sentiments there because, like, I see a picture from you know two thousand nine, ten, eleven. I see all the familiar helmets sticking out of it, but I don't see the. But I see it sticking out of a lawn dart, you know, uh, and it just represents the bad old days of, uh, you know, some really not very good drivers populating the back of the grid and uh, strong teams having to take pay drivers and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just get uplifted when I see a DW12 because, yeah, there were some really weird bits about it like the bumper pods and like that <laughs> the rear wing end plate that looks like they just ripped it off an a1 uh, a1 gp car and uh, the back to front front wing end plates there was just some things that just didn't chime with me at all but the suddenly the racing got a lot better uh, you know the only thing they got wrong was the package for the brickyard because that became, unfortunately, a pack race, which is what we've been trying to get away from on all the other ovals. And the DW12 did cure that on all the other ovals. But then, uh, you know, Indy 500 turned crazy uh, with everyone slipstreaming and like 10, 10 cars fighting for the lead on the last lap, which may be what some people want, but uh, it, it, didn't, uh, it didn't allow a great deal of uh, variety on behalf of... Uh, the teams. I mean, the, that is the one downside, and someone technical like Jake will probably, uh, uh, yeah, relate to this. The engineering departments of uh, IndyCar teams over the last twenty years have shrunk. You know, they're chasing the tiniest things now, and true innovation, I'm afraid, is nowhere to be seen. Even the IRO five. Yeah, you could do different things like different, uh, you know, uh, mirror mirror stalks and that kind of thing just to refine your error. Yeah, that that era, even that era has gone, and they you know, they're just chasing tiny, tiny fractions now. And I I, I think there's there's still a large part of the uh, IndyCar community that hate to see that disappear. But in terms of the racing, and in terms of solidity. Uh, and the ability to race on all types of track, I think the DW12 has absolutely been a blessing, and I still regard the current car as a DW12, but with Chris Beatty's beautiful uh, aero kit on it. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that, and I was going to throw to Jake and actually say the one of the things I like about the latest Indy cars is that they've actually had the the sort of the balls if you like to really go and make a car they think looks better and that will race better rather than having constant arguments about oh you know well this disadvantage that and this you know f1 has taken 
decades to get to, you know, it was obvious that he had dirty air problems in the eight, in the late 80s and into the early 90s in Formula 1. And only now are we looking at possibly useful rules for 2022. Um, but actually, this is a series really taking the ball by the horns and improving, improving it, isn't it? Yeah, I certainly, th- I certainly agree. Um, as you say, the car represents that recovery. Um, the, the sort of between t- 2000 and 2010 was a bit of a, a weird and uh, disjointed time. Um, what I will say is the sort of um, that little bit of time before they settled on this current aero kit, um, the the very first set of aero kits that the manufacturers were allowed to produce themselves. It was, uh, uh, I think, a bit of a misstep in that regard. Obviously, when you've got the same aero kit, and it, uh, obviously, like, at the start, it didn't look fantastic, but, you know, it was, uh, it looked like an indie car to a degree. But then you have all of these weird aero kits. And I remember the first, I think, first race of uh, 2015, 20, yeah, 2015, uh, yeah, uh, at St. Petersburg. And there was just bits flying off everywhere. And, there was so there was more more caution periods than there usually are, um, but it was it it was this weird sort of battle between Chevy and Honda, to and Honda's them. Honda's front wing. I mean, the amount of flex when you saw them accelerating out of their pit box, it reminded me of those old black and white movies of you know uh, like early French aviators trying to fly with like nine wings. Uh, attached to them and then yeah you could almost hear the kind of like Benny Hill's mad piano music in the background and then you know it it was awful I do kind of agree with Derek Walker that he wanted to get more of a distinction between Chevy and Honda it was you know his way of trying to get keep the manufacturers uh, happy but of course Chevy then uh, got the lead and they allowed Honda to improve their uh, aero kit and uh, that didn't go down so well with Chevy. I mean, this is a problem when you open it up. Someone's going to end up superior. Uh, so I think um, that era is just a very dark era. Because if you if you look back now at 2017, uh, which is the last year of the manufacturer era, those cars look more dated than uh, you know the original DW12 in 2012. It looks just clung. It looks like they've still got their packing cases around them. Uh, it's just awful it's bit stuck everywhere and uh yeah it didn't improve the racing whatsoever and they were even throwing off different you know trail patterns as well in, in terms of uh the amount of draft you got off a honda was different from what you got off a, a chevy and it was really noticeable on the road kit forms on long straights such as at road america uh bordet said that it was just completely different from following a Honda through following a Chevy and he didn't know if that's because he was in one and the other one was in the other uh, he said it just got terribly confusing um, so yeah nightmare and ridiculous amounts of downforce I mean they, the cars were effective in that regard I, uh, I have a picture somewhere I think it's on my phone of uh, Will Power's arms basically with all the blood vessels burst uh, from where he uh, was going around Phoenix uh, endlessly testing and uh, it looks like sunburn it's just horrifying how much downforce those cars had now that is never going to lead to good racing and i'm afraid while i'm on this rant i would say that that lack of good racing is also what drove us out of phoenix as well dreadful well i think um i think for all the reasons you've outlined i think it was, it was worth mentioning the car i think because of uh, you know i do feel that indycar racing is better now than it was 
well, 15, 10, 10, 15 years ago. Whoa, wow, Absolutely that's another ever. debate. Is it better than carts? A 90s carts. Well, they need more horsepower, but apart from that, I mean, the yeah, actual quality I, of the racing is superb. It's fantastic, yeah. So I think it's not going to go through for all those reasons. And frankly, one of the most <laughs> exciting things about IndyCar racing it's it's history is how eclectic and brilliant and different and vibrant the different constructors and different solutions you know that's very fair yeah indycar started with or in the early days you got specials individual specials so you have a field of of all individual cars and we're now in a position with modern motorsport where of course we've got all the cars are the same we there are plenty Mm. of reasons for that but it's just not quite as fever is it so um I'm not going to put the Dallara through, which means we do have our final group of cars. Shall oh, just quickly go thank God you've been taking notes. I've just been on I ramps. have got some, yes, I have got some notes. It'd be terrible to have to sort of pause <laughs> to go back and listen to it all again, wouldn't it? So, um, so the, the finalists are the Curtis Craft, the, the 500 series of, of Roadsters, the Lotus 38, the McLaren M16, the Chaparral 2K, the Lola T91 00, the Reynard 97i, and the Penske PC23. So at this point, I'm going to throw it over to you guys and say, either is there a car you immediately want to lose off that list? Is there a car that you want to champion? And is there a car that we've missed that you think you, we should at least mention? I mean, uh, obviously managed to get David to mention the Maserati earlier on. Are there any cars that we probably... I'm, a, I'm quite a fan of the Parnelli Jones Roadsters in the 60s. I think they look quite cool, mm. but I don't think they can quite uh, quite knock any of these out. But any, anything else that we should be talking about before we pick a winner? I, I want to I wanna champion that, that, that 91 Lola. That was, uh, to, if you say IndyCar to me, that's the sort of thing I think of. And it, as you said, it was... Uh, about how old are you, Jake? <laughs> I'm, I'm 26. How can a 1990s of... car predate you? This is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm falling into a wormhole. It's terrible news. But, you know, when, you, when you're growing up and your kind of first experience of IndyCar is that stint that Nigel Mansell did in the 90s, and that's, you know, that's the, it's the evolution of that car. So for mm. me, for me that's, that's what IndyCar is. I know that you guys will have different views, um, but as, as a youngling... Uh, I would like to put the load of three, please. So, right, okay. Well, that's a st- straight in for the kill with the with the Lola. What do, what do you think, David? Have you got? I would ditch the Reynard ninety seven I. I'd actually ditch the Lola just because we can't quite define which Lola we think is the the really uh, special one. To me, the two K is everything that is right about. Uh, IndyCar and innovation, Chaparral 2K. But I can't knock the longevity of the McLaren M16. I think that is going to be my choice because the others are blurred by the lines of, yeah, how much the Lotus 38 was down to the genius of, you know, Jimmy Clark um, uh, and, you know, other people who drove Lotuses like uh, AJ and uh, Parnelli. I mean, the two of the greatest drivers of all time. Um, and it was so different in concept that you think, well, hang on, it didn't actually take that long for the uh, for it to be superseded, the Lotus 38. Because if you look at the Klimbrauner Hawk, which was based on the Brabham, um, that was right up there, uh, yeah, within a year and a half of the Lotus 38's emergence. So that would be my argument. But 
about the Lotus 38 that it got so quickly. Okay, if you're going to go for the 2K, I'm going to go for the McLaren M16, just out of sheer longevity and its adaptability and what you mentioned earlier, that it went through these rules changes and it was still, you know, kingpin. I think the M16 for me beats the beats the 2K, partly for that longevity and also because, of course, um, ground effects went away eventually. You know that was yes. a thing. That was a although it was an innovation. It was innovation that didn't stick, whereas the the aerodynamic approach of the M16 did did stick. And you know what you could say has still continued to have an impact. Um, the only other car I want to throw into the mix, and maybe as we've. Uh, I, I, I did kind of. I was leaning towards the Lola a little bit. I like. I like Jake's argument, but I think mm. that it is a problem that we can't pick an individual one. And to to pick a family of cars does seem like we're we're leaning things in Lola's favour a little bit too much. Before we make a final decision, just mention the Penske PC twenty three twenty three B because it's a great it's a great chassis uh, during the the main part of the season, and uh, and of course it has this innovative engine for the Indy five hundred. Um, but I'm struggling to really push it past the McLaren M16. So, Jake, I'll put back to you. If we've if we've got rid of the Lola, are you happy that the McLaren no. M16 is the one that we're going to go for? I, I came into this genuinely not having a not really sure what I was going to go for. I wanted to hear the arguments. Yeah, we know. Um, uh, and um, yeah. That the it seems it seems it kind of feel it would feel right if a Penske was the greatest IndyCar, uh, and that without a doubt yes. they're the great. It's the greatest IndyCar team, isn't it? It's the greatest American motorsport team of all time, surely. Yeah. But there's not one car. I guess that almost really demonstrates how good they've been. They've just won <laughs> in everything. But maybe we get around it by saying that, of course, the first team to win the Indy 500 with the McLaren M16 was. Penske. Penske. So I think I've just talked myself around to maybe agreeing with David. Jake, are you going to run off in a half? I think. Or are you going to? Agree? Uh, no, no, no. I think that's. Uh, I think that's a perfect compromise. Um, yeah. I was. I was lucky enough that they had the uh, M16 out on display when I was doing some <clears throat> bits at McLaren. I think at some point last year. And it is. It's. A, it's a lovely car, hugely successful. And obviously, if we want to put the Penske compromise in, it, it fits perfectly. So I'm more than happy to go along with that. Well, that is yeah. not the result that I expected when we started. I'm not sure that I did particularly expect one, but there we go. So, um, Autosport's uh, greatest IndyCar of all time is the McLaren M16. Uh, so that is what is going to go through to, to the grand final uh, against the winners from the other categories. Um, okay, are you allowed to tell us? I can tell you after we've stopped recording, if you like, David. You'll probably be quite interested to hear what they are. Um, but, yeah, so... Um, uh, that just leaves me to say uh, thank you very much uh, to you, the listener. Uh, please do let us know what you think um, on social media or email us at allsport at allsport dot com. You can tell you can tell us what we got completely wrong and uh, and what we should have picked instead. Uh, and I'd also like to thank David and Jake very much for joining me. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it uh, as much as I did.
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hey, what's up, guys? This is MMA fighter Clay Guida, and I'm not afraid of anyone or anything, but losing my hair was an entirely different kind of fight. So if you're suffering from hair loss like I was, then you've got to check out my boys at Bosley. Pound for pound, they are the champions of hair restoration. That's why I turned to Bosley to get my hair back. The entire Bosley team was so professional and kind from start to finish. All it took was a simple one-day procedure, and I was on my way back to rocking my full hair again. So take it from me. Don't wait if you are thinning or receding. I'm so thrilled with my results, I just wish I would have went to Bosley sooner. It's time to finally knock out hair loss because the best is yet to come. Check out Bosley today. When MMA fighter Clay Guida was losing his hair, he trusted Bosley to get it back. Now it's your turn. Get a free information kit, plus get a $250 off gift card when you text CLAY to 203203. Text CLAY to 203203. Or go to bosley.com. That's bosley.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 